0: Now, with all that said, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing our study on discipleship by studying the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount as of today. Uh, Occasionally, people will ask me this question, Tom, I want to pray for something, but I'm not exactly sure how I should pray. Typically, that question is a topical kind of question. Uh, if I'm single, should I, should I pray that God would allow me to find somebody to be married? Uh, if I'm married and I'm struggling in my marriage, how do I pray for my marriage? If I have a child I'm struggling with, how do I pray for my child or my business? What do I pray about in my in my business? Is it okay to pray that my business would actually be profitable, or is there is there something wrong with that kind of thing? Typically, the questions I get about prayer are topical. My response tends to be to ask a question in return, and the question is this, how are you living your life? What does your life look like? And what your life look like should tell you how you should pray. Now, when I, when I say that, some people go, well, I don't know that my life would necessarily match up to what I think I should pray, at which point I say, well, then we know which one of those things should change. We know what Scripture directs us to in prayer, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But sometimes there's a disconnect between the way we live and the way we should pray. You're about the little four-year-old boy that was going home from church with his mom and dad and his baby brother, his brand-new baby brother, who had just been baptized in the service. But the four-year-old was sobbing in the back seat. And his dad said, why are you crying? What's wrong? It was such a great day. And he said, well, the preacher prayed that me and my little brother would grow up in a Christian home, and I don't want to have to move away. (laughs) Just think about it a little bit. You'll get there. Sometimes... Tom Ricks' prayer life and the way Tom Ricks lives his life don't necessarily match up. Jesus' response to the question of how to pray is fundamentally to ask two questions in return in this instruction, and and, really what it comes down to is this. We must learn to live in the manner in which we pray, and we must learn to pray in the manner in which we live. They should go together. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, Here are the words of instruction the Lord Jesus gives to all his disciples on the topic of prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he adds this footnote. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we consider the topic of prayer this morning, we ask for your spirit and your word to guide our study. Father, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds, that this portion of our worship to you would be uh, fully engaged by your wisdom, by your truth, not by our philosophy, not by our opinions not by which way the wind happens to be blowing today. Father, we are a fickle people. We need to be grounded solidly in your word, and it is that for which we pray this morning. Father, every person in this room needs a prayer life, needs to be in a relationship with you where we can come and pour out our hearts and our our souls, where we can confess our sins, where we we can glorify you, where we can ask the questions that we don't Uh, understand where we can uh, come and, and seek forgiveness through the Lord Jesus. So this is a topic that's important to every one of us. Father, I pray that you would bring your truth to bear in our lives. Some of us have prayed so much on one particular thing, we've stopped believing in prayer because it hasn't come about the way we think it should. Others of us are just beginning to learn to pray and we're not quite sure how to do that. So, Lord, there's something here for all of us. I pray that you would not let me stand in the way of what you want us to know and to learn and to understand this morning. Forgive me for my sins. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would teach your people. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, let me say right off the bat that this is going to be a a really quick overview this morning. We're going to study all of the Lord's Prayer in one sermon. You could do a a seven- or eight-week sermon series on this prayer uh, so this is more of an outline format, uh, we're going to kind of hit the peaks, but perhaps it will give you some, uh, some fuel for further study. Uh, if you want to do some more homework on this, if you want to want to read up on it a bit, there are some really good resources out there, but this hopefully will at least point us in the right direction. And there, there are two basic uh, observations in this text this morning, because this prayer is basically uh, broken down into, into two main sections. The first section we're going to find in verses 9 and 10 really talk about us praying and living for God's glory. So that's where we're going to start. The second thing we're going to look at then is praying and living in God's provision. So those are the two main aspects of this prayer that Jesus teaches all of his disciples. So let's start with praying and living. For God's glory. We're going to put those two together because that's, I think, the instruction in the prayer. So Jesus says, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now just to break this apart in its most simple forms, the first thing Jesus calls us to understand is that God is our Father. And we've dwelt on this topic a little bit the last two or three weeks, so I'm not going to spend a tremendous amount of time there, but simply to remind us that God looks at us as his children. If we are in Christ Jesus, if we have come to him through faith in Christ and his work for us on the cross, God doesn't see us as servants. He doesn't see us as, well, now he's obligated to do something nice for people he doesn't really like. He sees us as his adopted children. So you need to think of God in terms of a father who loves his children perfectly, in terms of a father who wants the very best for his children. Jesus says, when you start out the prayer, remember the one to whom you're speaking, the one to whom you're praying is the one who loves you with the perfect love that even the best earthly father couldn't possibly show you. This is a father that loves without fault and without error. So we can rest in that relationship. We don't have to work hard to earn his love. Sometimes you have to prove yourself, right? Sometimes you have to, have to show that you're worthy. Maybe you're, you're in school and you're trying to make the team. Or maybe you're in line for a promotion, but there are two or three other people, and you're vying for that spot, and you got to kind of show your worth to the company. We spend so much of our time in this life trying to prove that we have some value that others will see and that others will appreciate, and God says, I love you because you're my child in Christ, and he puts a period right there, and he doesn't add anything else to it. But I think it's also important for us to remember that just as we can rest in that relationship, we also need to understand that a father demands respect for the authority that he has over his household. God has placed the the father of the house. If there's a father in the home, he's responsible for the well-being, for the care of everyone in the house, and therefore, he deserves that respect. He deserves uh, to be treated in a manner that is appropriate to his position. Uh, we have three kids and uh, two boys and the girl in the middle. Uh, and the girls typically don't struggle with this, but the boys typically do. Somewhere around middle school, going into high school, you know, they kind of bow up a little bit and they want to test that. And, and both my boys had that experience when they were growing up, you know, somewhere around ninth grade, tenth grade. You know, they, they said something smart and I corrected them and they kind of came back with something smarter. And I said, you really don't want to go there. <laughs> I'm the only guy in the room that's willing to die for the position in which he holds in this house. You know, you're going to move out in a few years, and you're going you're to be on your own, so you don't want to test me. And you, you might be stronger than me now, but I have a gun, and I'll shoot you in the kneecap, and I'll, I wouldn't shoot my child in the kneecap. But point being, I wanted them to learn that, you, you know what, Dad deserves a little bit of respect for all that he does. And I think Jesus is saying both of those things. Jesus isn't saying, I really need to say this. He's saying God's going to shoot you in the kneecap. Jesus saying that your Father is your Father, and all that that means. So at the very beginning of the prayer, before we even get into any petition to anything else, we see our Father, and we rest in that relationship, and we respect His authority, and we pray accordingly. Therefore, the next thing speaks about the glory and the awe and the reverence that God deserves. Our Father who is where? In heaven. The word that theologians use is transcendence. It simply means that God is above us. He's different than us. His his otherness. You and I are the same. You and I are made out of flesh and bones. You and I are are finite in our existence. You and I can be at one place in one time, and, and maybe if we're really, really great at multitasking, we can do two or three things at one time. God knows no limitations like that. God knows no limitations of time or boundary. God is every place at the same time, and therefore, because he is the Lord and the King of heaven, he deserves our awe and our worship and our reverence. I really love the fact that Green Tree Community Church is, is somewhat of a casual setting. I used to preach at a church where I formerly served said, I used to put on a robe every Sunday, and about this time of the year, that got a little bit, got a little bit warm. It got a little bit uncomfortable, and there's, there's nothing wrong with formality. Formality in many places can be a good thing. Just as informality as we have in the Bulldog cafeteria, it'd be kind of tough to dress this place up, is I think a, a healthy and good thing, but not if you take it to the extreme, not if you really kind of come into worship on Sunday morning, you and I kind of walk in and go, yeah, we'll kind of get around to it eventually, and it, you know, it doesn't really matter. We'll, you know, as long as we're kind of ready to go by the sermon and, and I'm in here, you know, kind of not really paying attention to the songs and things like that. We're here to worship God. <laughs> we're here to bow before God, and we can do that in a casual setting. But our hearts need to remember that God is reigning in heaven, that he is worthy of our awe and our worship and our reverence. And therefore, Jesus goes on to instruct, not only do we identify our Father who is the the king, the one in heaven, but there's something we want to happen because of that. Hallowed be your name. Your name be the name that is above every name. Your name be the name that is not used as a curse word, but is used as a blessing. Your name be the name that kind of stops everybody in their tracks, and they go, oh, that's right. And, and there, there's a peace in their heart. There's a, there's a contentment. There's a joy because his name means life. His name is a good name. And if we're going to pray, Lord, how would be your name, it seems to me that we need to live in a way that his good name is dependent upon what people think of me, what people think of you. When I get up in the morning and maybe I pray this prayer, maybe some of you are in the practice of praying the Lord's Prayer every day, do I then go out and live in a way that says when people see my life and my actions and my attitudes, whether it's in my home with my family or in my place of business or if I'm in school, in my school and doing my schoolwork, when people see me, do they see the good name of God? I remember a couple of seasons ago, I uh, tried to turn over a new leaf as a hockey coach, and we were playing in a, in a, in a game, and, and just a terrible call by the referee, not surprising, of course. Nothing wrong with the way we were playing. It was all the referee. And I just was sitting there like this, and I'm, I'm rubbing my head, and I'm, I'm looking down. And uh, one of my players looked at me and said, Coach, you all right? I said, Yeah, I'm okay. He goes, What are you doing? I said, I'm praying. He goes, Oh, you're you praying that the ref would be better? I said, No, I'm praying that I'll accept him as he is, and, and he'll see Jesus in me. And uh, I don't know if that happened. I know a lot of other times it doesn't. But when we think about the name of God being glorified, what does that mean for you and me in a practical way? What does that mean in the way I drive my car down the street? I'm ashamed to say I'm probably not thinking about that when I drive. What does that mean for you when you're in the middle of a business deal? What does that mean for us when we're raising our children? Do I live my life in a way that says if God's good name depended solely on me, I would represent him well? I'm not talking about earning our salvation. I'm not talking about working real hard so God loves us. I already have that. But is a passion of my life that, that no one would ever curse God because of the way I treated them? I don't think we can pray the Lord's Prayer sincerely unless we're willing to do that kind of inward reflection. We're praying and we're living for the glory of God. And then one other aspect in this, the in verse 10, Jesus says we are to pray, Your God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think there are a couple things that are going on there with the word kingdom and the word will. I think the, the notion of God's kingdom is one of position. It's one of his rules. So when you think about a, a king, you think about him maybe with a scepter sitting on a throne and, and, and ruling and, and, and uh, being in a position of authority. And, and that's the notion of kingdom. The notion of kingdom is it belongs to you, God. You are in a place, you are seated in the place of king. But then your will be done really is the notion that God would reign accordingly. There are good kings and there are bad kings, right? There are, there are good governments and there are, there are depotisms. There are folks that are tyrants. And there are folks that are, that are benevolent and gracious in their rule. You have both kinds. And what we're praying is that God's gracious, benevolent rule, that activity of God's would be as, as equal here on earth as it is in heaven. So we think about what's going on in heaven. God is being worshipped. God is being glorified. Is he being worshipped and glorified in this world? And is there a way that we can bring more people To understanding the true character of our God so that they would joyfully come alongside and worship as well. See, we're not just acknowledging his rule, but we're also acknowledging when we pray this prayer that that God is calling us to be an agent of his grace. That God is calling us to represent his kingdom. We're asking God that 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 kind of activity, that kind of of glory and and all that it encompasses would come and find its manifestation on earth. Therefore, as a disciple, we're praying that we would be part of bringing that to earth. Let me give you a really, really simple example of this. If you go to the book of Ephesians and you read in chapter 5, you will see instructions for husbands and wives. I'm just going to talk to husbands because I'm a husband, I'm not a wife. In that passage, it says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Now, if you think about the way Jesus loved the church, all you need to do is look at this symbol right here, and you know what that means. It means that he gave everything for his church, and that Jesus is now reigning in heaven. He is now the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he calls his church his bride. That's a language that is used in the New Testament for the people of God. So, when, when Paul teaches in Ephesians through the Holy Spirit that husbands are to love wives the way Christ loved the church, and I pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, one of the things I'm praying, just one, and again, this is just an example, I'm praying that I would love sinning the way Christ loved the church. And then the question is, am I going to go seek to live in that manner? I'm not saying I won't get it wrong, I'm not saying I won't make mistakes. But what Jesus is calling us to in this prayer is a life of submission as disciples that we would not just pray for God's glory, but that we would live to the extent that his glory would be seen in us and through us. But that's the first half of the prayer. There's the second half. Jesus is not only calling us to pray and live for God's glory, but he's reminding us to pray and live in or under or through God's provision. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. Now we, we, change, we kind of turn our gaze from heaven and we begin to look at kind of day in and day out life. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me go down a side road for a second because you're saying if you're looking at your Bible or on the page, it's like, wait a minute, what what happened? And yours be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That was added later on by uh, a good pastor group of pastors who thought you you know you got to end a prayer with amen, and so they they put that part on. Uh, this is the 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 kind of the guts of the Lord's prayer that Jesus gives. This is right here. So that part that is added on is good and it's appropriate and it speaks truth. And we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer in a few minutes, and we're going to pray that part of it as well. But Jesus is giving us just this section this morning. So what are we praying and living for under God's provision? Well, the first thing is daily bread. In other words, our physical needs, our need for, for food which is also representative of our need for drink, our need for clothes, our need for a home to keep the elements away from us in the wintertime and when it gets really hot in the summertime. We're going to learn more about this as chapter 6 unfolds. We're going to learn more about what Jesus has to say about our physical needs and God's provision of those physical needs and how to keep those in an appropriate balance. But what we're saying here in this prayer is that we are acknowledging that God is both provider and sustainer of all life. And because God is the provider, because God is the sustainer, because he has created the world to work in the way in which it does. So when the farmer sows a crop, he he or she can actually reap a crop later on and you and I can go to the grocery store and be beneficiaries of that. Because God has given engineers and architects wonderful minds to be able to build things, we have homes in which to live, and the list goes on and on and on. But God is the provider of all that. God is the one who put the universe in its place. God is the one who established the rules by which things like seeds turn into ears of corn. Therefore, he is our sustainer. So our trust is in him, not in ourselves. So my prayer is that God would give me my daily bread... That's a prayer that protects me from worry about how I'm going to get it done. (laughs) It also protects me from a self-centered, selfish reaction of, how am I going to do with everything that's mine? (laughs) Boy, now now I get to spend more on me. Jesus reminds us in this prayer that we should think about today. We should think about how God has provided for us today. And I think in the context of 21st century America, Perhaps our prayer should be more of, God, give us this day our daily bread. Thank you that you have done that for us. Now, what do you want me to do with all this that's left over? Because certainly you and I, for the most part, at Green Tree Community Church, don't live day to day. We don't live hand to mouth. We've been blessed financially in extraordinary ways. It is all from God. He is the one who has provided Whatever talent, whatever ability you have to earn a living, to provide for your family, to care for those around you, whatever uh, opportunity God gives me to, to do the same, we must thank him and still continue to pray that he would provide because if he doesn't, it won't be there. But I think also beyond that, as we acknowledge that he is the provider and the sustainer, what do I do with the extra? God, give me this day my daily bread and then maybe use me to give somebody else Some daily bread might be a good way for us to consider this part of the prayer. But Jesus says, not only does God provide for our physical needs, but God also provides for our spiritual needs. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What is the greatest spiritual need in your life? What's the greatest spiritual need in my life? Our greatest problem is not not between humanity. The problems between humanity stem from our problems between us and our God. We've rebelled against Him. God gave us a perfect world in which to live, and we kind of tossed it all away. God gave us an opportunity to be in perfect relationship with Him, and our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to go down a different pathway. And because of that, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person I know, including myself's greatest spiritual need, is for forgiveness. And that's what God has given us so freely in Christ Jesus. Above all, first things first, I need God's mercy. And I receive God's mercy not by working hard, not by doing all the right things, saying all the right things, never doing any of the wrong things. I receive God's mercy by faith. I receive God's mercy by saying, Lord, I'm a sinner and I've rebelled against you. I acknowledge that. Everything about this table this morning, about Celebrate Communion, is a visible representation of the fact that we need a Savior, that we rightly stand under the judgment of God. We deserve His condemnation, and yet what does He give us? He gives us grace, and He gives us mercy through the cross of Christ. And that's where I start. Forgive me my debt. Forgive me everything I owe in the counterbalance that's so out of whack in my relationship with you because I have sinned against you. I gave you an example just a minute ago of of husbands loving their wives. I guarantee you in the last week I have not fulfilled that commandment. I have not done that perfectly the way I should do it. I've left things undone that I should have done, and I've done things that I shouldn't have done in my relationship with my wife. Maybe they're small things. Maybe I'm learning a little bit. We've been married almost 33 years now. Maybe I'm better than when we were only married five or six years, but I still have not gotten that one completely right, nor will I ever. I always need the forgiveness of God every day. That's the place in which I stand, and it's the place in which you stand, and God has given it to us freely in Christ. So then when we say, Father, would you forgive me my debts? What's his answer? In Christ, yes. Through Jesus, every single time, every single sin. How do I know if I've embraced that? How do I know if I'm truly resting in that? Well, that's where the second... Part of this sentence comes in, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. How do I know if I really give it? Well, if I get it, how do I know if I truly understand it? How do I know if I'm really embracing God's grace? How do I do it forgiving other people? And we'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. But that's the spiritual need that's addressed in the Lord's Prayer. Not only that we receive forgiveness, but that we become agents of forgiveness as well. The other provision that God gives is to protect us from the evil one and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Your translation might say, if you're looking at a different one than mine, mine's the English standard version, yours might say, deliver us from the evil one. That's technically not an accurate uh, translation, but it gets to the point. The point is that clearly when you read this, lead us not to temptation. Well, other passages of Scripture clearly say that God never tempts us. Go to James chapter 1. It couldn't be more clear. So why would we pray this? Well, Jesus has something else in mind. He's not questioning the character of God. Like every once in a while, God would go, okay, take a time out and do some bad stuff. That's not how God operates. What Jesus is understanding here is that we are not strong enough to resist the evil one who always, 100% of the time, leads us into temptation. That, that's, that's why he exists, that he wakes up every morning and he says, how can I tempt everybody in this world to reject God, to go in rebellion against him, and, and to eventually end up with me in hell? That, that's the thing for which the evil one lives, and we can't stand against that. If you've ever sung Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he talks about this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, all right? We will not fear, for God has willed, what, my strength to pull me through? No, God's truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness is grim, but we tremble not for him. One little word will fail him. We rest in the fact that God protects us. And that's what Jesus is saying we pray for in this passage. We acknowledge we're not strong enough to resist the one who always leads us in temptation. We're acknowledging that it's only through his might and his power That we are delivered from the one who would seek to destroy us. So, how do we know? And this is again, this is a very brief glance at the Lord's Prayer. But, how do we know if we're growing in in prayer and life consistency? How do we know if if what we're talking about this morning, this passage, that we're not just praying this prayer and then kind of going about our day and, and forgetting it? But we're actually praying, whether it's these exact words or something along these lines, and then we're getting up off of our knees and we're saying, now God, use me to that end. And we're actually paying attention to the way in which our life is working out, and we're actually looking for opportunities to see this prayer happen in our lives every day. How do we know if we're making progress in prayer and life consistency? Another way to word it is how can we recognize uniformity in devotion and in behavior? What's the real test? Well, I think that's why the addendum comes in here, in verses uh, 14 and 15. Jesus has mentioned, you know, six or seven different topics as he's instructed us to pray, but he only comes back and repeats one of them. And those of you that are teachers know repetition is the mother of study. If you if you want to really learn something, you you read it or you do it over and over and over again. So whether it's muscle memory in your brain or whether it's literal muscle memory, uh, doing something so many times that it comes naturally to you, there's something about repetition that's very, very, very important. And Jesus only comes back to one particular aspect of the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now we would be tempted to read this and say well if i don't forgive then i'm not a christian. And i want to be careful here because that might be true. <laughs> that could be the case. But Jesus isn't saying you know now if you for, you forgot to forgive your wife at, at breakfast and, and you, you know it, it got by you you missed that one and you blew it and you, you weren't thinking about it and you fell over dead of a heart attack at lunch you're not saved that's not what Jesus is saying. We don't live in fear. Remember how the prayer began? Our father what Jesus is saying is you need to look carefully at your life if you want to know whether or not you're genuine in your prayers. And if you forgive, which is is probably one of the hardest things to do in the Lord's prayer, to genuinely forgive when we are when we are very literally affronted and hurt in a very specific way forgiveness may be the hardest thing for us to get our hearts and our minds around, and therein, I believe, lies the real test for the disciple. I love Jesus, but I'm unwilling to forgive so-and-so. Have you ever thought those words? Maybe you've never vocalized them. I have. I've actually vocalized them. I love Jesus. I can't possibly forgive that person for what they've done. And I haven't seen the disconnect in the moment, but by God's grace, he always brings me back, and he reminds me, that if I have been forgiven, I will be one who forgives. Perhaps the best example I can think on this is a woman named Corey ten Boom, and a lot of people my generation are a little bit older have, have maybe read her book, The Hiding Place. She grew up in, in a, a Nazi-occupied territory, and uh, she and her parents and her sister helped hide Jews from the Nazis and they were finally captured. She ended up in Ravensbrück concentration camp and she survived the war her sister did not, her sister died in captivity. And Corrie ten Boom was a faithful disciple of Jesus and after uh, she wrote her story she traveled all over the world and spoke about that experience and people were fascinated by her story and also moved very much by her faith through those dark, dark hours. But, and many of you may know this story, there was a time when she was uh, speaking in Munich and a man began to walk up to her after the service who was one of the prison guards and he was one of the meaner prison guards. Uh, And if you know the story, she, she froze there for a couple minutes as that man began to talk to her about his experience at the prison and he knew that he had been one who had abused her and he had yet, he had come to Christ and he was coming to her and he was asking for forgiveness. Now, That makes anybody I ever have to forgive in my life pale in comparison. makes me ashamed that I've never forgiven, you know, that that I wouldn't forgive someone. I can't begin to understand what that would be like. And she tells the story and how she was like, she she said, I'm standing there praying. I'm praying that that he reached out his hand and said, would you forgive me? And she said, I'm praying, God, would you lift up my hand because my hand won't lift up. And she said, it probably took five seconds, but it felt like an eternity to me. And she forgave him. And typically that's where the story stops. But I want to read for you what she says after that because I think it speaks to the point this morning. Just a couple of sentences. She says this. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. Listen to this. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You see, the call to forgive is not a burden that God places on us. The call to to believe God is our provider and our sustainer is not so that God can manipulate us into giving more money to the church and, and hold us down and oppress us. The invitation to the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to be set free. It's an invitation to experience the love of God, perhaps like we've never experienced it before. Brothers and sisters, may God give us the grace to learn to live as we pray and pray as we live. Let's close in prayer, and I'm going to invite you to pray with me out loud the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. With our heads bowed, let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.